I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by our wonderful sponsors at the $10 tier and above of my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Once again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Producers, credit shoutouts to Mark Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Dan, Brian, The Warnerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nobody, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace Belden, Trans Natural Pod, Galen, Justin, Nick W, Chance, and the Mere M E E R Project. If you'd like to join those listeners in getting your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining them in supporting me at the $10 tier or above on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, patreon.com slash Parallax Views. And now, on to the show. On this edition of Parallax Views, we return to the subject of Israel-Palestine. Mitchell Plitnik of Rethinking Foreign Policy with a special focus on President Biden's upcoming visit to Israel in June, and the situation in Israel-Palestine with the large expansion of settlements in the West Bank, the death of Shireen Abu Akla, and much, much more, including the upcoming far-right Israeli nationalist flag march happening on Jerusalem Day this weekend. But first, the Florida Bulldogs' Dan Christensen returns to the program for an update on Saudi Arabia and 9-11 in light of the newly declassified FBI report dealing with that very issue. If you're unfamiliar with the Florida Bulldog, 
It is a non-profit media outlet that's been covering the Saudi Arabia 9-11 connection story for a number of years now. More on that in the conversation to follow with Dan Christensen of the Florida Bulldog. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that uh, has been very helpful uh, to me in looking at the uh, question of uh, Saudi Arabia and 9-11. Dan Christensen of the Florida Bulldog, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you doing, Joe? Very good, very good. And uh, you have a new article out at the Florida Bulldog uh, on the recently released FBI report. Uh, about Saudi Arabia and 9-11. That article is titled, A State Secret No More. New FBI reports says Saudi government officials provided support network for 9-11 hijackers. And a lot of this has to do with something called uh, Operation Encore. Uh, Maybe you can give my listeners a brief background on what Operation Encore was and what what this new FBI report is saying. Sure. Uh, I think we should tell uh, everybody first that uh, you can find Florida Bulldog online only uh, at floridabulldog.org. And um, as for Operation Encore, it was uh, we had sued the FBI. Uh, It it becomes sort of an interwoven tale here because we had sued the FBI originally for information about what was happening in Florida. Uh, regarding 9-11. I had written some stories with uh, Anthony Summers about that. And um, in the course of that, the the 9-11 Review Commission was created uh, and issued a report in 2005 that uh, did a number of different things. And one of the things that did was in a footnote, it mentioned that there had been some information reported to it uh, regarding a, uh, a 2012 um, report. And as you know, 2012 was long after the uh, 9-11 Commission went out of business. So when I filed a subsequent FOIA request wanting to see the information about that and other stuff from the uh, 9-11 Review Commission, Of course, they didn't release it, so we had to sue. We did, and um, months into the uh, litigation, we received a copy of a uh, highly censored report uh, from October 2012. And at the time, we didn't know this was Operation Encore because among the things that they had blacked out was the name Operation Encore. Um, uh, I think now for... for obvious reasons. Anyway, uh, what that did was that showed us that uh, or the parts of it that were still uh, available showed us that uh, the FBI believed that uh, a certain person whose name had been blanked out had tasked uh, a couple of Saudis who were living in, Sa- in San Diego prior to 9-11 with helping the hijackers. And those guys were a guy named Omar al-Bayoumi, uh, who was a suspected Saudi spy, and uh, uh, Fahad al-Thamari, who was an imam at the uh, Los Angeles Mosque, and also a diplomat at the Saudi consulate in Los Angeles. Um, so anyway, 
and then later on, the name uh, of the third person came out as a guy named Mossad Al-Jara, who was a, uh, a ranking Saudi diplomat in the Saudi embassy in Washington, who was also a member of the uh, 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 Ministry of uh, uh, Islamic Affairs. Then uh, later it came out that uh, the name of this operation had been Operation Encore. And, and this was uh, a follow-up uh, to, to another 9-11 investigation, right? I think it was called, uh, it was like codenamed Pentbomb. Yeah, I'm sorry. And it gets very confusing here. Pentbomb was the original name of the FBI investigation into 9-11 that began, you know, right after the attacks and lasted for years. Um, that is still the, the overarching name of the investigation. Operation Encore was what they referred to as a sub-file, um, but it was, in effect, a branch of Operation Pentbomb that was conducted by FBI agents out in Los Angeles and San Diego who frankly suspected Saudi involvement in this, uh, despite some of the earlier findings. They felt certain leads hadn't been followed up properly. So they did follow those things up. And they came out with a lot of information. And initially, all this information was declared a state secret by uh, uh, the Trump administration Attorney General Bob Barr. He actually went into court and swore that that was the case. Um, and so it should all be under wraps, except for President Biden, fortunately, uh, who was uh, um, frankly pressured by lawyers for the families that are suing Saudi Arabia to make this information public. So what he did in September was, and this is all focusing on Operation Encore, he ordered uh, the, uh, all federal agencies, including the FBI, most notably the FBI, to conduct what are called declassification reviews of their records to determine what could be released. And he ordered that it be as broad as possible. Um, and that's apparently what they have done. They have now released thousands of pages of records, so much stuff that um, I haven't been able to go through it all yet. Uh, I'm only a, a fraction into it. Uh, but, um, you know, so God knows what else is in there. But one of the things that was in there was this report. And what was so significant about it was... This, this it, is the uh, July 23rd, 2021. Yeah, for, it's dated, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, the, the, this, it was written last year, last July, so it's less than a year old. And um, all the other stuff that's being released is all years and years old. But this is the FBI making all these statements about what, you know, sort of summarizing the investigation. Uh, they state in the, in the thing, it's to help agents in the future that are involved with this. But um, it, it also puts it, you know, sort of in a tidy way together for uh, people that are looking at this today that aren't in the federal government. So what are some of the key aspects of the report? I know that much of this report, uh, as, you, as you put it, sort of zeroes in on a, a pair of religious offices operating within the Washington, D.C. Embassy of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Can you tell my listeners about that? Yeah, the uh, the uh, and it wasn't just the 
it was a, I described it as the apparently nefarious role of these organizations, uh, which they make uh, a pretty clear in these in these documents. Uh, and uh, the, what these two offices were are the Office of Islamic Affairs, which Al Jara headed, he was the director of it, and also the Office of what they called Dawa, uh, D-A apostrophe W-A, which is the uh, uh, religious propagation office. And, um, you know, the, the quote uh, that struck me about it from the FBI report said that investigations of the 9-11 hijackers and their support networks identified significant connections to these offices, either directly uh, or via the Saudi Arabian consulate in Los Angeles. And remember that both of these were, as they were in the embassy, were under uh, the, the ultimate direction of uh, the U.S. ambassador uh, to, uh, uh, from Saudi Arabia at the time, uh, Saudi Prince Bandar, who's obviously a member of the royal family there. Very also, well known. I think he was nicknamed uh, what uh, Prince yeah, Bandar ba Bush in the U.S. by some yes, people. He was very he was very close to to both President Bush's. He has been uh, he became the ambassador back, I think, in the mid '80s and was there through uh, 2005 or 2006, something like that. There's lots of photographs of him uh, with uh, George W. Bush. Uh, and there is a very uh, uh, um, lesser known, but sort of notorious photo of him that um, emerged, was taken by the White House uh, and uh, showed him two days, two or three days after 9-11 sitting on the uh, White House portico with President Bush, Vice President Cheney, Condoleezza Rice, and others who you can't quite see. Um, and he looks very comfortable there. He's got his feet stretched out. He's got a cigar in his hand. And uh, he looks like he's quite at home. And it's uh, we don't know what was discussed that day. But um, certainly a very intriguing photo and I would like to know much more about what was discussed that day. I don't know what records may exist of any discussions that were held that day, but we do know that uh, this occurred and this occurred after it had become known that uh, I think it was 15 of the hijackers came from Saudi Arabia. So it's interesting too, we should note this whole issue of a uh... U.S.-based Saudi support networks uh, for the hijackers. The, the FBI had not uh, acknowledged um, this before. Uh, previously, they, they had not talked about these networks being found. Correct. Um, that's one of the things that struck me as I read this, because I had never seen them refer to support networks. Obviously, they have used that term discussing suspected um, networks and things like that. But here they're saying it in a declarative way that these existed. Uh, and I think that that's a significant step uh, from the FBI. And you know, it's going to be used by the attorneys for the families uh, in establishing a Saudi connection to this case. Uh, it, um, that and a number of other statements uh, that were made in these reports sort of, um, I use the term, uh, appears to make outdated uh, denials uh, or, or statements, excuse me, that were used by the 9-11 Commission or made by the 9-11 Commission that the Saudis have used over the years 
to sort of deflect criticism from them and to deny any responsibility from 9-11. Um, um, you know, for instance, where they talk about Prince Bandar in the report, um, it says that, uh, and this is a quote, several, uh, uh, referring to uh, how they uh, had been a number of Islamic uh, organizations uh, and imams and religious figures in the United States, many of which were involved with militant ideology and had been supported by the Saudi government. And the report goes on to say this, several of these were known to be tied directly to Prince Bandar as the propagation of militant ideology would naturally provide justification for those who were in the hijacker support network, these organizations will be listed below. And uh, they do, this is, it's a 130 page report. It goes on to list a number of individuals and uh, institutions, uh, religious and otherwise, that um, you know came under the FBI's scrutiny here. So uh, when it comes to some of the names we've already mentioned, uh, we mentioned uh, Bayumi and uh, Thumeri, I, I believe, um, and I, I hope I'm not mispronouncing that, but could we talk about those two figures a little bit more in depth and then uh, Jara as well? Sure. Um, Thumeri and Bayami, uh, Bayumi's names have been known for quite some time. Um, and uh, uh, it, so it was Jara's name that, that was new here. Uh, like I said, Bayumi was a suspected spy. Um, as a matter of fact, there have been some of the other documents that have been released recently um, confirm uh, that he was indeed being paid a monthly stipend. There he's referred to in a September, I'm sorry, in a, a 2017 report, June 2017 report. Uh, it, it says that in the late 1990s, and, and I'm reading from my own story here, uh, up to uh, September 11, 2001, Bayumi was paid a monthly stipend as a co-optee of the Saudi General Intelligence Presidency, or GIP, which is their CIA, essentially. Um, and he was paid via Prince Bandar, according to this. Um, and that he would then spy on people uh, in the Los Angeles community, pass the information on to Bondar, uh, who would then in turn pass it back on to the intelligence community. Bondar later became head of that intelligence community too. So, thank you. Sure. Um, anyway, um, that's who that's who Bondar was, and is he's still alive? Did you mean Bondar there or, or Bayumi? I'm sorry, I meant Bayumi, excuse me. Um, we also- uh, And, and real, real quick, not to interrupt you, but- uh, It's good. But it, it's important for people to know. So Bayumi is very important to all of this because uh, th there was uh, a summit, a, a terror summit uh, that the hijackers Al-Hazmi and Al-Midar were that at, and then they come to the US, uh, I believe um, through uh, LAX airport, and I think Bayumi meets up with them uh, after that. Yeah, well, Bayumi, um, about two weeks after, um, encountered him at a restaurant. Uh, he says that this was just by chance. He said that repeatedly, uh, although it's clear the FBI doesn't believe him. Uh, and um, But he says he ran into him, and then he ended up helping him. He went so far as to... Uh, 
you know, go to banks with them, sign uh, um, rental agreements on their behalf, things like that, uh, that seemed to sort of be, he said he did it because he's a good Muslim and Muslims help out each other in things like this. Uh, but it seemed to be a, uh, um, a bit much for the FBI to believe that there was nothing more to this. And there are a number of other events that all, it's a confluence of things that show it, it wasn't just these relationship. There were all sorts of people that were involved. They all knew each other. Uh, Bayoumi was a part of that, as was uh, uh, Fahad Al-Fameri. Um, and uh, what became most interesting about this, excuse me, was when uh, Jara's name became public, the man who the FBI said tasked Bayoumi and Fameri with helping the hijackers, because he was not just, you know, another name. He was a major figure in the Saudi embassy in Washington, the head of the Islamic Affairs Department. And he also had connections with a variety of other people whose names have surfaced in this, other clerics uh, who were, have connections to Al-Qaeda and who also were out in, in the United States meeting with other people uh, and, you know, who were either directly or indirectly involved with the hijackers. So it gets to be, it's, it's quite an interesting tree with very broad branches of individuals who are involved here. But Thumeri, Bayoumi, and certainly Aljara are the key people that the FBI has focused on. And also you, there's a whole section in, in your uh, latest report on these matters uh, about a figure known as uh, Osama Pasnan. Uh, could you talk about that and how that, I, I guess this ties into uh, the issue of anthrax as well. Well, uh, that was certainly one of the new things. Basnan was a former embassy employee back in the early 1990s um, uh, who had, his name had come up in this before because his wife had received thousands of dollars in payments from the wife of Prince Bandar. Uh, woman known as Princess Haifa. Um, and, you know, he was also a known associate of the hijackers, according to the 2021 report. And he, had, I think, had first come to the attention of the FBI because back in 1992, he hosted a party for the guy known as the blind Sheikh, Sheikh Omar Rahman, uh, he did this in Washington, D.C. And then next year is when they had the World Trade Center bombing, in which Rahman was implicated and, uh, and later convicted uh, for conspiracy in the bombing. Um, went to prison. He's now dead. Anyway, uh, that was obviously a strange thing to happen. But Bosnan was also interesting. He was living in the same apartment complex um, on 9-11, where the, the, the two hijackers, uh, the first two to enter the country, uh, um, um, Al-Hazmi and Al-Midar, uh, had lived. He's living in the same place, uh, which is an, a very interesting coincidence. But he, um, he also had a, a role, um, both in an unofficial way, 
uh, he was referred to as the Omad or mayor of the expatriate Saudi community in San Diego. Um, and he had, so he had lots and lots of connections and stuff. And his wife had interesting, there was all sorts of interesting stuff about him, but the new thing that came out about him, which um, I, you know, has never been reported before, was that apparently back in an unspecified, that for some reason the date was blanked out, uh, in 2001, apparently before 9-11, uh, he, he had asked uh, somebody else whose name is blanked out, uh, quote, specific questions about how anthrax and smallpox are transmitted and what effects infection has on the human body. And then on another day in 2001, uh, Bosnan again inquired of uh, this unknown person um, with specific questions about how smallpox infection advances through the human body. And Bosnan uh, apparently asked this guy again, uh, was it true that just prior to dying, a smallpox victim suffers extreme abdominal pain? Um, and then on another date in 2001, Bosnan's wife, a woman named uh, Majeda Dwykat, um, had a book, I assume this is when they searched his house, uh, called Chemical and Biological Weapons, Anthrax and Sarin. So that's all we know about it. But it's very interesting that that's there and that's not come out. And, you know, we had the anthrax attacks that have supposedly been pinned on this scientist uh, that used to work for the Army. Will this raise a new question about that? I don't know. I have no idea. And maybe, and maybe there's more information to come about it in the rest of these documents that I've not been able to get to. And, and um, you know, I imagine the lawyers have read through everything, but uh, nobody else seems to be reporting on this. For I don't understand where the New York Times and the Washington Post are on this story. Do you have any speculation about that? Why, why do you think this story, uh, I know you've covered it, NorthJersey.com uh, and Mike yeah. Kelly have covered it, but it seems like there's been a blackout on all this. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, the why? I don't know. I mean, it, it, it makes no sense to me. I mean, those are the two cities where the attacks occurred. This is a local story for them. They should be all over it. So before we close out, uh, I just had a few more questions. Um, this report also deals with um, talking about Saudi charities and uh, various institutions what are some of the most important ones um within the report that you've come across right well the, the most important one is the muslim world league that's the one that's sort of the uh well they refer to it as the primary uh ngo non-governmental organization of saudi arabia which operated the international islamic relief organization uh sanabel which was another charity investment arm Al Haramain and the World Assembly of Muslim Youth. And um, they were collectively run out of offices in Herndon, Virginia, outside Washington. Um, the offices were, according to the FBI, uh, associated with the Saudi embassy. Uh, Prince Bandar uh, was the, for instance, was the uh, president of the uh, International Islamic Relief Organization. And um, there, uh, I'm sorry, 
they were associated with the embassy. He was president of a thing called the Institute of Islamic and Arabic Sciences of America in Fairfax, Virginia, which is a uh, subsidiary of Mohammed bin Saudi University in Saudi Arabia. The, two, the 2001 report says that Saudi Arabia was known to finance the uh, uh, IIASA, which was its initials, uh, and its primary administrators and teachers were Saudi Arabian diplomats. Um, and it goes on to call it one of the many pieces of Saudi proselytizing activity in the United States. But to me, the most significant thing in the entire report uh, was, uh, well, it also talks about how the uh, Saudi embassy had pumped like $23 million into its accounts and stuff. But the thing that struck me about this was a statement um, that is about today. And it says this, uh, summarizing it, it says this analysis, as well as more recent open source reports regarding the Saudi clerical establishment, highlight the extremist, that the extremist nature of Saudi society is still prevalent today. And that was written in July. So it sounds like things haven't changed all that much, which goes then to Bob Graham's um, Cassandra-like warning that there may be other Saudi cells out there still active or dormant uh, waiting instructions. Bob Graham, of course, was could you could you repeat that? I, I you, you the the sound of whatever you were putting down covered it. Oh, I apologize. Um, the uh, uh, you know Bob Graham had had um, has been warning uh, that uh, there may be sleeper cells still available or for operational activity in the United States, and um, this suggests that. You know, that certainly is a possibility. And uh, Bob Graham, of course, was the Florida senator who was a, a co-chairman of the House uh, of the Congress's joint uh, uh, look at 9-11. And uh, th this also gets into, I guess the report mentions, um, you know, Saudi Arabian uh, perception management campaigns. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, they were, that was an interesting turn of a phrase. They talk about um, how they would, would uh, do that in, um, they referred to it as, yeah, that's exactly the phrase, Saudi Arabian perception management campaigns employed in Saudi schools and mosques uh, and to influence Americans' view of the country uh, after 9-11 that 15 of the 19 individuals who perpetrated the attacks were Saudis. They were trying to make it appear that um, by stating that, people were trying to drive a wedge between the United States and Saudi Arabia, who had been closely allied for decades, and uh, they wanted to make sure that no wedge was, because what happened obviously was a potential, was a certainly an act, a warlike act that could have generated a warlike response if it had pinned on Saudi Arabia at the time. They didn't want that to happen, certainly. So there were these things that were done, uh, according to the FBI, to manage public perception of what happened. In closing here, I, I know I'm going to have a few listeners, uh, because I, I do have um, listeners um, in the American Muslim community that, that listen to the show, and I want them to know, I, I don't think in covering this story, 
we're attacking, you know, Islam as a religion. Um, I was wondering if you could comment on that, how you feel about um, people who, uh, sure. I guess, feel that this is targeting of, of Muslims. Yeah, no, I know, I, I know some Muslims who, who definitely don't feel that way. Um, they're concerned, you know, about what happened too. And, you know, I mean, what we're doing is simply reporting what the FBI is saying. I've seen nothing in any of those documents that indicates that, you know, there's an anti-Muslim attitude. I think there's an, an anti-radical uh, um, concern here. There's and, a concern uh, with uh, Wahhabi and Sal yeah, Salafi which is, Right, which is the uh, dominant religion and which preaches uh, a lot of anti-Western uh, hate, frankly, that is not a part of, of normal Muslim teachings. So I've seen nothing that indicates that there's any sort of bent here against the Muslims. If I had, I'd certainly report it. Is there anything else you want to say in closing? Uh, what, what do you hope my listeners get out of this conversation and also the reporting you've been doing and, uh, you know, even just the FBI report uh, generally? Well, um, I use the the, uh, the hackneyed phrase, they ought to stay tuned because there's going to be more stuff coming, I'm sure. But I think it's important, you know, I mean, uh, some people turn around and say, hey, look, this is a, over 20 years ago. Why do we care? Uh, but, you know, if indeed uh, the Saudi government uh, betrayed us and is what Bob Graham has referred to as a perfidious ally, I think we need to know that uh, the, because, I mean, there are ongoing concerns. I mean, it was only a couple of years ago that the FBI, uh, I'm sorry, that the CIA identified uh, the country's crown prince and future king, Mohammed um, bin Salman, no better known as MBS, as being the person who had uh, um, I was going to say Jamal Khashoggi. Yes, I was going to say Gaddafi, and I said, "No, that's not right." Um, yes, that had uh, issued the orders that had uh, Khashoggi killed, uh, and uh, you know he hasn't been convicted in a court of law, but that's a pretty strong statement coming from you know our intelligence community here. So, uh, you know, w we need to know who we're dealing with here, and it's important for us. Uh, as members, you know, of the United States to know enough to be able to interact with others about this, perhaps even get in touch with our elected officials, let them know what we think. Well, Dan Christensen, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Could you let my listeners know uh, how they can uh, keep up with the work you and others are doing at Florida Bulldog? I think that, uh, it's a it's a very interesting website because um, I know that it's it's kind of dealing with local news, but I think a lot of the stories that your website covers um, are of you know uh, great significance e even on a national scale. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, you know, we're based in South Florida, and um, it, it we cover you know national and state stuff. Not not so much national stuff. The only really truly national stuff. Or is 9-11 because we just don't have the resources. We're a, a small operation. But a lot of the issues uh, that, you know, are happening in Florida now resonate uh, around the country because of our governor and his obvious attempts to uh, 
uh, A, get reelected and B, become president. So they take on a, a national uh, theme. So again, you can see Florida Bulldog at floridabulldog.org. We are a, uh, we're now in our 12th year. We're a, uh, an, a, a federally approved not-for-profit 501c3. We exist on the uh, charity of those who give to us. And um, so there you have it. And we list on our site, everybody that gives us um, a contribution. We've believed that that's important for transparency reasons. Next up, Mitchell Plitnik of Rethinking Foreign Policy on his responsible statecraft piece, Biden's trip to Israel is getting trickier by the day. This piece, of course, deals with Biden's upcoming trip to Israel in June. This visit, of course, will be following the tragic death of Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akla, which has sent shockwaves through both the Arab and non-Arab world. We'll be discussing all of that and much more, including the upcoming Jerusalem Day flag march by Israeli far-right-wing nationalists in the conversation to follow with Mitchell Plitnik. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very, very happy to have on, Mitchell Plitnik of uh, Rethinking Foreign Policy and also the author of this responsible statecraft piece that I found very interesting. Uh, Biden's trip to Israel is getting trickier by the day. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good. And good. maybe you could describe uh, your background a little bit and uh, your involvement in covering issues related to Israel and Palestine. Um, sure. Um, I've been studying this for the past almost four decades and uh, working in this field since the late 90s. I'm the former co-director of Jewish Voice for Peace. Uh, I opened up the um, the U.S. office of B'Tselem, Israel's uh, leading uh, human rights organization. And uh, most recently, I was the vice president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Um, so been working on this in many different capacities for a long time, writing, researching, uh, published a book last year called Except for Palestine that uh, is actually about to come out in paperback. Um, so, yeah, I've been in and around this issue. Um, personally, I grew up an Orthodox Jew uh, in a very, very uh, pro-right-wing Israeli environment. Um, so, you know, obviously a long journey from there to where I am now. But uh, largely it was just that I could not accept the, the narrative that I was taught and so started studying to find out what was really going on. It took me really about 30 years of study before I'd even... Uh, feel comfortable getting active on this issue. I wanted to really make sure I knew what I was doing. So um, uh, for the last few years, I've mostly been uh, freelance writing and running, uh, as you said, uh, rethinking foreign policy. If you could, and then we'll get into the article, but was there any um, specific turning point for you or anything that started to maybe um, create cracks in how you used to think about Israel and Palestine 
um, as compared to how you think about it now? Like, was there any turning point for you specifically or? There really wasn't one specific turning point. I think for me, two things very, very, at a very early age, um, and I'm talking about like before, you know, I was even necessarily like maybe you know, 10, 11 years old. Um, I was already developing political views that were very, uh, that were whatever people might call it, progressive, liberal, you know, things that uh, very oriented towards social justice. This was the 1970s. Uh, so there was a lot of that around me in New York City. Um, so that was, you know, and, and and the view of Israel never just on a very visceral level, never felt like it fit with that. And so that sort of puzzled me as a child. It just puzzled me. I, I'm not, you know, I, I didn't get deep into it, obviously, at that young age, but it, it something fell off as I was starting to learn about the world around me. So that, that was one thing. The other was, it, and this was as I got a little bit older and more into my teens, the narrative I had been taught was that the Jews and uh, uh, the Zionist movement were all good intentions and trying so hard to uh, to work with the the Arabs, as you know, no one talked about Palestinians back then, um, work with the Arabs and, and, and to find ways to work things out and make peace. And they were just trying and trying. And, and the Arabs just hated Jews so much that there was no that just didn't make sense to me. By the time I was 13 or 14, I just knew no conflict works that way. No, the, nobody's ever that much in the right yeah, and one to the other side, that much in the wrong. There's always extenuating circumstances. There's always more to learn. So I started learning it. And uh, frankly, with, with, a, with a, uh, uh, a narrative that's that shallow, it can't really withstand serious study. And that's still true today. I think, you know, that's why uh, the, the pro-Israel, uh, so to speak, and, and I, I don't actually think that it is really pro-Israel. I don't think it's good for Israelis, but why that whole industry is so bent on creating this narrative that that uh, not only has layer upon layer of distortion and falsehood, um, but also cannot be questioned. That's why there's such a sensitivity to questioning it, because when you really start getting into it, even Zionist historians and Zionist writers don't, uh, don't support the simplistic narratives that, that most people uh, who are supportive of Israel in the United States, not in Israel, but in the United States, uh, believe. So it's interesting you mentioned uh, the, the sort of um, the industry in America that presents itself as, as pro-Israel. Mm -hmm. uh, I know you talk a little bit about that in this responsible statecraft piece, uh, groups like APAC, and also um, one that I'm less familiar with, uh, the Democratic Majority for Israel. Uh, could mm -hmm. you talk about uh, those groups and um, their role sort of in the U.S. political scene? So um, those groups are two very, very efficient and, and well-funded uh, lobbying groups. APAC, uh, for anyone working in Washington, uh, uh, work, and even if you don't work on foreign policy, you're familiar with APAC and, um, and its potency on Capitol Hill. Now, you know, many, there's, there's unfortunately that because of the nature of anti-Semitism, that also can lead to conspiracy theory uh, and to to really reinforcing anti-Semitic myths about uh, you know sort of the hands behind power and Jews being a manipulative cabal and this sort of garbage. Um, the truth of the matter is, APEC is simply a very very good lobbying group that is very very well funded. Um, there is a massive funding network to in the United States to support Israel um, that goes that that uses all channels. 
So there's foundations. There is hugely rich uh, individuals like, for example, the Adelson family is probably the best known um, who fund many of these groups, although APAC is too moderate for them. But um, uh, there, there are, and, but it stretches all the way, you know, into synagogues, into five and ten dollar donations. They do everything that they can to move money, and this is all. This is the American way. This is the American political system. They just play it very, very well, and they have for a very long time. And crucially, there's been for a long time no serious political opposition. Uh, uh, Palestinian advocates in this country are starting to to build that and have been for the past few years. But they have a long way to go to catch up. Uh, not to mention that they have an uphill battle because this is a culture that uh, does not look kindly in general upon uh, upon Arabs, uh, upon Muslims, uh, which most Palestinians are, um, and has grown, uh, especially the last two generations, has really grown up with a very mythologized view of Israel that um, has, has engendered a great uh, deal of connection. So it's it, all of that comes together. Uh, to make APAC in particular a very powerful force. Democratic majority for Israel uh, was only formed a few years ago, um, starting in around 2018, 2019, uh, because they saw that within the grassroots of the Democratic Party, there was starting to be a real serious questioning of our policy towards Israel and Palestine. This Democratic majority for Israel, is it, mm-hmm. it sounds like it may in some ways be a reaction to something like J Street, which tried to be sort of the um, the anti-APAC sort of Israel lobby. Yeah. That, uh, there's a certain truth to that, but I think it's deeper than that. Um, the uh, J Street did set itself up as kind of a counter to APAC, although they resisted that label for, for many years. Recently, they've come, I think, to embrace it a bit more. Um, and they, they had a certain amount of success. For, for a few years there, J Street's political action committee was the single biggest pro-Israel, and, and they do identify as pro-Israel, we should be clear about that, um, it was the single biggest pro-Israel pack in the country. Now, the next 10, 11, 12, 13, however many on the list, uh, were all very much on uh, on a very different page from J Street and much, much closer to APAC, uh, many of them even more radical than APAC. But um, but J Street was the biggest. Now, APAC in the this year just created their own political action committee, which uh, now is the biggest uh, PAC, uh, pro-Israel PAC in the world. APAC, despite its name, is not a PAC. Um, the PAC in APAC stands for public, um, I'm sorry, it, it's the um, American Israel Public Affairs Committee. So they are a 501c3 nonprofit. They, they do lobby on the issue, but APAC as a discrete organization does not actually get into uh, political election. It, that's always been something of a cover, but that's true for many 501c3 uh, organizations. So again, you know, APAC um, uh, is good at what they do, but they are co- uh, committed to being bipartisan. J Street tried to be bipartisan, but no Republicans would work with them. Uh, so def- by default, they ended up just being active in the Democratic Party. And uh, but I think it was not so much J Street as it was a groundswell uh, of grassroots organizations um, that were actually you know, specifically pro-Palestinian. J Street identifies itself as pro-Israel, pro-peace. So they, they support Palestinian rights to, in a certain sense, but their fundamental orientation is towards Israel. 
Um, now there's in, in the Democratic Party. Now I think you have many more groups, uh, Palestinian groups, American Muslims for Palestine is a good example. Um, you also have the Council on American Islamic Relations, other groups, as, as well as some Jewish groups like Jewish Wars for Peace that, that uh, I used to work with, uh, if not now, and, and other groups that are specifically uh, Palestine solidarity groups. And they were gaining traction. Um, there was clearly a shift in the grassroots of the Democratic Party that was happening. And so uh, DMFI, Democratic Party for Israel, uh, cr was created to, to counter that. Uh, and specifically, so the DMFI only works within the Democratic Party. That's their that's their only turf. That's hence the Democratic majority name. So that's their mission is to make sure that the Democratic Party stays pro-Israel. Getting into this article you wrote, Biden is expected to visit Israel, I, I think, um, for the first time since his presidency yeah. uh, in late June. And of course, mm -hmm. you know, given current events, uh, this is probably going to be an interesting visit for him. <laughs> um, it will be. Um, I think there's there's always there's always something, right? Um, as it turns out, this is a particularly uh, fraught time, I think, for Biden to be visiting, because there's a lot of real serious issues that the United States is is trying to avoid. Frankly, you know, the the U.S. Uh, under Biden is trying very hard not to get deeply involved in Israel Palestine. They don't want to. Uh, do what past presidents have done, and and really try and try and resolve the issue, or even you know make some big diplomatic breakthrough. They more or less want to manage it um, so that they can focus on other things. They're trying to pivot away from their deep involvement in the Middle East in general, um, which is one of the reasons that they are working with these so-called Abraham Accords, these these normalization agreements that Israel signed under the Trump administration with uh, the United Emirates, Bahrain, um, to some extent Sudan, but also Morocco, um, and, and to build on that to kind of form a, a, uh, a, a, an alliance for Israel uh, to counter Iran in the region. And this will enable the United States to focus more towards Asia and China, which is really where foreign policy is trying to, in general, uh, in Washington, is trying to head and trying to get away from the Middle East. So. They're, they're trying, they've been trying very hard to just avoid things, um, to, to just try and keep things quiet as, as much as they can. But, you know, Israel just killed an American citizen. And, um, and you know, there's, despite Israel's protests to the contrary, the evidence is pretty clear that that's what happened. Um, now, could, is it clear enough that you could prove it in a court of law? Well, no, that's why a lot of people want uh, an independent investigation. Uh, many people are also saying the United States has a responsibility to investigate this. The United States is saying Israel should investigate it, but nobody outside of Israel and Washington thinks Israel will, will do a credible investigation. So um, that is really upsetting things right now for, for Biden. We're talking about the, the death of uh, uh, Shireen Abu Akhla of Al Jazeera. Yeah. Right. Um, she um, uh, she her death has reverberated throughout the world, uh, not just the, the Arab world. She was a major media figure on Al Jazeera. She was somebody who was in everyone's homes. She was somebody who people knew and people were very familiar with her even here, um, even though most of her, not all, but most of her dispatches were in Arabic. So um, she, you know, it's a big deal. And uh, it's, you know, she's the second actually American citizen to be killed by Israel this year. Um, 
There was a Palestinian-American who was killed by Israeli police when they had him. Uh, uh, he was an older man, and they had him face down uh, uh, when they were interrogating him, and he died. Um, now, you know, what happened there is not entirely clear. It does seem that, you know, he, he didn't do anything wrong. Uh, it was just kind of the typical uh, uh, thing that happens when uh, <laughs> police are, are trying to harass Palestinians. Um, and, and, and there's a lot to that story that's unclear and needs investigation. And yet somehow this American citizen died and there was very little discussion about it. Again, with Shireen, they can't avoid the discussion. But the U.S. is is still not calling for an investigation. Now, there's there's some rumbling in Congress. Uh, there has been a letter from 57 uh, uh, members of the House of Representatives, all Democrats, of course, um, calling for the uh, State Department to investigate, um, State Department and FBI to investigate Shireen's death. Um, but there's no indication that that the Biden administration is paying any attention to that whatsoever and trying instead to get away from it as much as they can. So um, I, I think I think again, this is probably a failed strategy. It's probably not something that uh, is going to just go away. It's very hard to make it go away when a, when a global network like Al Jazeera is going to keep it alive. This was their reporter and a very key member of their staff. Well, I was going to add to that too. I think things are compounding constantly right now. Uh, so e even before uh, Shireen Abdul Akla's uh, death, I mean we had. Um, the, the controversies over Al-Aqsa Mosque uh, during Ramadan. Uh, then we had the, the funeral uh, procession for Shireen Abu Akla, where the, the Israeli police uh, attacked mourners. And, and now we have, um, I know, I think it's going to be at the end of this week, there's the flag march going on, I, I think, in East Jerusalem. And Hamas has already said they're going to retaliate for that. So you have all these issues happening at once, and things are escalating very quickly, it appears. Yeah, I mean, actually, it's funny. The Israeli police have actually appealed to uh, the ruling of the Israeli Supreme Court that said the flag march could go ahead. Uh, the Israeli police don't want it to because they know that this is the, these are uh, the, these are not your typical Israelis. These are these are extreme fascists um, uh, and extreme fanatics who will be. They won't be just marching through the streets waving flags. They will be marching through the streets yelling "Mavet Arabim." They will be, which means "Death to Arabs." Um, that's that's what they always do. Uh, that's their chant when they they're, they're they, going they through this Palestinian march. towns. Yeah, that's the okay. that the the route is intentionally uh, through the Muslim quarter of the old city. Um, that is exactly where they wanted to go, and that's what the court said they could do. This is com this comes up every year, um, and sometimes they work it out that it you know that it can be avoided. Sometimes not as um, and right now as things stand. Uh, they are they are going to go through uh, Muslim areas of East Jerusalem and uh, scre you know chanting death to Arabs and um, you know whether or not Hamas retaliates uh, there will likely be some response to something like that um, as there would be in you know in in a Jewish neighborhood of New York if somebody was marching through yelling death to Jews um, I think that there would be a response to that especially if the police refused. Or were unable because of uh, court orders to pr uh, to protect the residents. So, uh, and that's that's more or less the situation that you have now in Israel. Um, that this is expected to happen. Uh, will Hamas do something uh, in response to that? They might. Hamas has actually been working pretty hard to keep things quiet. 
Um, they are trying to consolidate their own power in, uh, in Gaza and trying to find a way to, to move forward, um, to, to rebuild what they can of the economy, although it's almost impossible given the siege that Israel and Egypt have them under. Um, so we will see exactly what that means. Sometimes Hamas threatens and doesn't follow through. Sometimes they do. Um, it, it, all of this could very well escalate. I think, you know, I hate to say it, but, uh, you know, from a purely coldly tactical point of view, um, it makes sense for Hamas to take some action, especially so close to Biden's trip um, to for, for any number of reasons. Uh, you know, of course, it's never justified to attack civilians, but um, some response to this is is likely because, you know, and, and again, this is why the Israeli police uh, and other security agencies in Israel are trying to dissuade uh, the marchers and, and convince the court to bar the marchers from uh, from marching through the these Arab areas. What, what do you think the Biden administration reaction has been thus far. I, I mean, it seems like, um, you know, the Biden administration is probably irked, uh, as you put it in the article, by um, some of the actions Israel has taken. But it's it's sort of irked in a way where it's 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 aggravated. It even has to mildly rebuke Israel over any type of action it takes. Um, it seems like it really just wants to move past everything. Um, I, I, I don't think there are words for how badly uh, Joe Biden and uh, Antony Blinken and this entire administration has handled Israel and Palestine. Uh, what they have done is to do everything they can to simply keep things quiet, no matter what is happening. That is their only goal. Um, it, it, and this is the administration that came in promising to put human rights first. I mean, I, I don't think anyone really believed that, but to watch the, the complete and utter disregard for Palestinian rights that they have displayed from day one is appalling. Uh, and it should make every American ashamed and angry. Um, their, uh, their response, as I said earlier, their response is to try not to deal with it. They don't want to deal with Israel and Palestine. Um, the, the administration did talk to Israel uh, about uh, uh, Shireen Abu Akhla's killing and about her funeral. And the Israelis apparently gave them assurances that you know they would allow the mourners to to congregate but the the uh, the the law says and this is an israeli law that you cannot display a palestinian flag and this is what became the issue that the police used to move in on the mourners that we all saw we all saw what happened at at uh, her funeral procession um on top of that i think you know also as the once that scene died down what less people saw was what happened after that as as her coffin was finally brought to the church uh there's a, a kind of an alleyway or at least a narrow street that you have to get to and the police uh had a had a, basically a checkpoint set there and anyone who was coming in they were asking if they were muslim or christian and if they were christian they were letting them in and if they were muslim they were telling them they couldn't come in i mean i, I just you know I, I think americans considering how much support we give for israel should should just stop and think about that um if you are a Christian, you're allowed in. If you're a Muslim, you're not. Imagine if that something like that happened here. Um, and especially imagine it if, let's say, the, 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 uh, the group was Muslim, well, Christians and Jews. How would we be responding to that in the United States? I think we, there would be a great deal. There would be a huge scandal and a great deal of controversy. So, um, 
you know, and yet the Biden administration, it's nothing. Um, what we saw uh, even, uh, I think a really good sort of encapsulation of the way they've responded happened at Georgetown University's uh, graduation ceremony a few days ago, where a number of Palestinian students who were graduating were wearing kafias, the Palestinian scarf, the black and white scarf that, or usually black and white scarf that many people are familiar with, uh, and waving, carrying Palestinian flags, uh, holding signs about uh, calling for an investigation to Shireen's death. And one uh, activist uh, who, when she got her diploma, Anthony Blinken had given a speech and was there shaking every, each graduate's hand, and she refused to shake his hand. She just walked past him shaking her head. And apparently afterwards, he tried to talk to her and, and he said to her that he hears her. He hears her and he sees her as if, to, you know, this very uh, pseudo, uh, if you'll pardon the saying, pseudo liberal uh, sort of wording uh, to try and mollify the student. And she was completely unimpressed, of course, because this, these are words that are being thrown out. And the, the actions clearly contradict the words that, that Blinken was, was saying to her. Um, the, the policies that the Biden administration have pursued have been terrible for Palestinians. They have not regarded Palestinian rights at all. Uh, they have not intervened in any way with Israel's uh, uh, actions and tried to tone them down in ways previous presidents, by the way, of both parties. Uh, used to do from time to time, whether it was Barack Obama, George W. Bush, certainly George H. W. Bush, Bill Clinton. At, at various times, they would at least try to, to, to get Israel to back off some of its more aggressive policies towards Palestinians. There's been none of that with, with the Biden administration. Um, they're, they're, frankly, their response has been awful. And Biden's now trying to come to Israel next month, and he's going to want to talk about uh, you know, anything and everything, there'll be a few sentences in his conversations about a two-state solution, but they're doing nothing to pursue that solution or any other. Uh, and those sentences will only be uttered just so that the readout can reflect it. Um, there's no real action towards anything, and Israel knows very well. Um, fine, if, if, if they do something that upsets the Americans, like what happened at the funeral, um, there might be, if, if it's really bad, there might be a rebuke, there might be a comment uh, and, and in fact, from Biden, there's nothing but a very, very light rebuke, uh, but there will be no practical consequences. So what, you know, why should that's so therefore in their calculations uh, of how to behave, the American response is a non-issue. They know that America is not going to say anything about it or do anything about it more specifically. So from a, is it possible that the Biden administration is maybe looking at this cynically thinking, oh, well, a lot of the Arab leaders have normalized relations with Israel. Uh, you know, so, you know, we don't have to address this. It's not, it's not going to, you know, addressing it could only hurt us more. Uh, so just, you know, let it be. Is that yeah. sort of the logic that they have? Or I think that is pretty much the logic. Um, there have been in the past um, for, for previous presidents, and then we're talking, you know, pre-Trump, really, um, there have been concerns, regional concerns, geostrategic concerns. Um, there have been worries that, for example, you know, if Israel uh, or if there's a sense that there's no progress towards any sort of resolution and any recognition of Palestinian rights, that the region might, you know, get very tense and, and might threaten some of the uh, uh, Western friendly Arab regimes. That has proved not to be the case and that has proved not to be a concern. Uh, for reasons of 
basically of, of how repressive those uh, those governments are. And to some extent, uh, for I think more in the in the world of, of some of the Arab elites, a sort of exhaustion with this with this question. But one but way there, or another, there's sort of been uh, you know an abandonment of the Palestinian yeah, cause. I think by that's some exactly. Yeah. I, well, I, I think you know again the 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 extent to which Arab leaders, at least in uh, you know post 1973. Um, the extent to which Arab leaders really supported in a material way uh, the Palestinian cause has always been very shaky. Um, How much was their actual support and how much was just trying to do enough so that it doesn't hurt them? Uh, that's always been a question that I think uh, Palestinians have been very well aware of this, that, that that the support they were getting was half hearted, but certainly then at least better than nothing. Uh, Now they're getting nothing. Uh, that has been the shift uh, as uh, as the United States and Israel have moved closer to uh, bringing them these countries together and has polarized the region around a sort of uh, pro-Western Arab uh, unity versus Iran. That's been the centerpiece, and that's really the main U.S. concern right now. Um, and they've managed to get the United Arab Emirates and certainly Egypt, uh, Bahrain, and and uh, uh, you know, clandestinely, not officially, Saudi Arabia on board with this idea. Um, and they're talking with, you know, they have open conversations uh, with other countries like Qatar and Oman, uh, who uh, also deal with Iran and, and serve as kind of a bridge, uh, but are also working with these groups of Arab countries uh, to, to, you know, help form this sort of pro-Western alliance. So it's, and, and all of this is, is, is based on, it cannot continue, it can't exist without either resolving the Palestinian conflict or brushing it aside. One of those two things has to happen. They've elected to brush it aside because Israel is, has, has no real reason uh, to actually resolve it. So then if there are people that, that say, well, maybe brushing it aside is the only thing we can do now, what, what would you say to people uh, that, that sort of take that sort of view that, oh, we should brush it aside because I think you're making the argument essentially that no, long-term, this is very harmful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it is because while the leaders of, let's just say, for example, just taking the United Arab Emirates, those, those the leader now is MBZ, um, uh, they are... Um, they are oriented towards this idea. They are they are completely indifferent to the plight of the Palestinians in any real sense. Um, their only worry about it is a political one, and they're finding ways to now push that issue aside. The thing is that the people who live in these countries, who are actually the citizens, um, whether it's the UAE, whether it's Egypt, uh, I mean, we've seen this in Egypt and Jordan in particular, two countries that have had decades of uh, normal relations with Israel, but there is an enormous amount of hostility in those countries towards Israel. Um, it, 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 the, the hostility in some cases can even manifest in, in actual anti-Semitism, but for the most part, it is about the Palestinians. Um, and uh, those, those countries have learned to be very careful in exactly how they work with Israel and, and have had to uh, sort of balance working with Israel and therefore the United States uh, against the wishes of their own populations. Um, eventually, this is, you know, in the long term, that's not going to change. 
Um, it's not the the leaders of these countries may forget about the Palestinians. The people will not. That's been I mean, that's been established and we can see that throughout the region. Um, all you have to do is read news uh, news accounts from these uh, um, from these countries or even just social media. Um, you can see that that this is not an issue that's going away. You can see it's not an issue that's going away even among uh, people who are not Jordanian or Egyptian or Saudi people in in uh, the EU and in the United States. This is a, a major issue because this is, I think, and I think it's because, at least for me, my point of view, is that if we're going to talk about democracy and Western sort of values and ideas of liberty and freedom and equality and human rights and, and these things, well, how can we do that if we are supporting a country that is an apartheid state? Um, that is fun. It is a fundamental contradiction. And and it's not, you know, people will, will say, well, there's this country that does worse and that country that does worse. Than, and the, the thing is, though, those countries that they're looking at, um, let's say Syria, for example, you know, the Assad regime is not considered a part of the global community of democracies. It's not considered part of that, uh, that circle. Um, never was long before the, the, the atrocities of the past decade. Um, that's, you know, Egypt is also not considered a democracy. Nobody thinks Egypt is a democracy. Nobody thinks Jordan is a democracy. Um, nobody thinks China is a democracy. We, you know, it doesn't have to just be the Middle East. You're, nobody's, nobody's calling uh, Putin a democratic leader. We can look at, you know, all, you know, but we do call Israel one of those countries. We cannot do that when it is an apartheid state. It, it, it does harken back to... Not, not to interrupt you, but you know, you know I, I think in a way it hurts us because you know, we, we claim to be for democracy and human rights, mm -hmm. uh, but then when you see support of some of the things Israel is doing, you know, a, another country that's adversarial to the U.S. can say, well, this is all hypocritical uh, yeah. talk. It's all and in fact, they do. Yeah, and in fact, that's exactly what they do say. When we want, when we are asking uh, right now, people are asking, "Well, why are why isn't every country rallying around us when we're calling for a global unity against Russia uh, over what they're doing to Ukraine?" Nobody's nobody's rallying to support Russia. You know, Russia's pretty isolated on the world stage, but they're also not coming to support the United States position, and this is exactly why. The reason is that they're looking at the U.S. and they're saying, "Well, you know." you don't like what, what Putin just did in Russia, what are you doing about the fact that you pretty much did the same thing to Iraq and Afghanistan? Um, and, you know, when people, when, when you talk also about, uh, well, I just want to finish, when, when you talk about the human rights aspect and, and uh, certainly like a, a, a world order or any of that, well, we're supporting an apartheid state and not for the first time. We were the last country to give up supporting uh, apartheid South Africa. So, um, you know, the, the question is where are we may not, you know, it's one thing to not live up to your values all the time. It's another thing to, to be blatantly hypocritical about them. Yeah, and I, you know, since you had mentioned uh, the similarities between the invasion of Ukraine and the invasion of Iraq, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm still, it blows my mind seeing um, George W. Bush giving that speech <laughs> where he accidentally says, uh, yeah. you know, we must, condemn the, we must condemn the brutal and illegal invasion of Iraq. And then he says, uh, I think he said, uh, oh, I mean, Ukraine, and then he says, and Iraq too, and yeah, Iraq sort of too. Yeah. And yeah. it's just like, you know, to me, it's like, how did. can you not take it seriously? You know? Well, he knows what he did. I mean, that 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 was, I thought, a, a fairly obvious thing. And this is, 
this is where the problem comes in. I mean, for me, when I see these sort of bold proclamations about, you know, the the Putin and, and his people will face justice, and I'm fine with that if it comes from the International Criminal Court. Um, fine, let them let them please pursue Vladimir Putin for every single thing he's done in Ukraine. Um, but to hear it from the United States, to hear it from Antony Blinken, um, or, or certainly from Joe Biden, um, and, and let's remember, Biden was somebody who was, um, when, when we invaded, he was a, a very, very powerful figure in the Senate and was very supportive of the war. He did change later, but uh, he was very, very supportive of the invasion of Iraq before it happened. Um, and without that support, it might not have been so easy to do it. He was a key figure in this at the time. So, um, you know, I, I think we, we I look at that and just say, you know, who are you kidding? Um, and it, and again, it's one thing, even if we were going to say, well, that was the past, that was 20 years ago, that was, but it's not. And our, our attitude towards Israel, not, and again, not only Israel, um, our attitude, you know, we can talk about Morocco and their uh, annexation of Western Sahara, um, which for many, many years, uh, the United States um, was not supportive of. They, again, sort of walked a, a tightrope. They didn't and support Trump it. Trump recognized it, I believe. But Trump recognized it. And, and that recognition could have easily been reversed uh, and can now uh, by Joe Biden. He doesn't do it. Um, it, it. That is the easiest thing in the world and has much less, many fewer uh, political uh, complications than dealing with Israel. So, um, and yet he doesn't do that either. So, I mean, it's a broader problem in Israel, but Israel is very much, I think, uh, the, the epitome of it. Because Israel is, first of all, we uh, support Israel in a way we do not support any other country. Um, you do not see, for example, uh, uh, pol uh, U.S. politicians lobbying and, and working in legislatures to create laws to basically criminalize boycotts of the United States or of American corporations or of anything here, but, they'll, but they do it for Israel. Um, you do not see anything like, the, you know, Israel has gotten over the past, uh, I forget the exact amount of time, but uh, more than 50% of all foreign military aid. And, and this is a very self-sufficient country. This is one of the top 30 uh, uh, countries in the world for GDP per capita. They are more than capable of funding their own military. Uh, so we had now there's, again, many reasons for that, but all of this support and and also just the rhetoric around Israel being the only democracy in the region um, when it is in it is in actuality um, an apartheid state and being recognized as such more and more by all sorts of entities all over the world. Um, I mean, that level of hypocrisy is just intolerable and, and it undermines anything that the United States could even try to do if, uh, positively in the rest of the world. There were just uh, two more things I wanted to cover. And I also wanted to thank you uh, because you mentioned Western sure. Sahara and, and Morocco's annexation of Western Sahara. Mm -hmm. And I wish more people would talk about that. So I appreciate you mentioning that. Uh, but I guess the last two things I wanted to cover. Um, so with this upcoming flag march and this episode will be out before that, Mm -hmm. You know, I, when I first heard about it, 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 my thought was, how is this, I mean, to me, it's almost equivalent to, it, I hope this doesn't sound like it's going too far, but it, it would be like if, uh, you know, some, in the U.S., if some, like, alt-right kids that were, like, really far-right marched in a Jewish neighborhood. Yeah, that's I mean, I hope that that doesn't seem like a like I'm, I'm making a false I, equivalent. No, I don't. I don't think so. I think that's a very equivalent thing. I mean, these groups are literally fascist. They are absolutely racist. 
Um, there, there's really no, uh, it, many of them will not even uh, make any bones about that. Um, you know, I, I don't know, you're probably not old enough to remember when I was, a, when I was younger, uh, really a kid, there was a big issue in Skokie, Illinois, where a bunch of neo-Nazis wanted to march through that neighborhood, which was a Jewish neighborhood. Um, it was actually one of the ways that uh, the American Civil Liberties Union really came to, to prominence and to controversy because they defended the rights of those Nazis to march in those neighborhoods. The thing is, it's a very different situation because there isn't an open conflict going on. There wasn't an actual military engagement going on. Um, and, it, you know, th so we're not unfamiliar with these sorts of dynamics. But this is, uh, you know, th uh, this was an the Skokie thing was kind of a way to sort of thumb their noses for the neo-Nazis to thumb their noses at liberals and, of course, American Jews and, and people of color as well. This is actually trying to provoke violence. That the, the point of this is to provoke violence. This is what they're trying to do. They want um, the these people want, want to see the violence happen because if the violence does break out in the moment, um, we can talk about the politics around it, and we can talk about how much the as I did, how much the police want these people stopped. They don't want this march to happen. But if it does happen, those police are going to defend the, the, the Jewish marchers, not the Arab residents. Um, so um, that is actually their motivation. They want to see things like that happen. They want to see escalation because in the end, if it comes down to a question of guns, Palestinians don't stand a chance. Um, there's just, I mean, you know, the, 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 the overwhelming difference here in every way, shape and form, organization, equipment, back international backing. I mean, there's just no, they, they don't stand a chance if, if real open warfare you know, comes back. And I, I was going to add to that. Is there also, you know, I, I know there's been issues with um, Naftali Bennett's coalition government. Uh, does that play a factor in, in how things are going to pan out going forward? Yeah, I mean, one of the problems for Bennett is that he's part of the far right, um, but his coalition is not. There are other right wing parties in the coalition, um, but he's, you know, he for a little while last week, he lost his majority because a left wing um, member of the Knesset from the Merits Party, which is the farthest left of the Zionist parties. Um, and this woman happens to be a Palestinian citizen of Israel. Um, she left the coalition. She didn't leave the party, she left, but she left the coalition, which left the, which meant that the coalition had 59 seats out of 120. So they lost them their, their, I mean, they've lost their majority already, but they, they then became the minority. The, the opposition had 61 seats, they had 59. Um, she came back, so it's 60-60 again. But this is in the wake of a member of Bennett's own party. They had a 61 seat majority. And one of Bennett's own party defected and actually left for Likud, the leader, leading party in the opposition. So he, he's constantly walking a tightrope. And everyone was aware for a long time. I mean, as soon as this government came into being, they knew this government could never actually do anything of major significance unless there was a true national consensus around it. The kind of things that the opposition would only oppose because they were in opposition, not because of any ideological or strategic reason. Um, that those sorts of things they could do. There's not many of those in Israel, frankly. So this is really a government that can't do much. Um, and But one thing that this government can do um, is crack down hard on Palestinians because with the exception, and yes, some of the exceptions are members of this coalition, 
But that is something that there's a lot of consensus uh, in uh, in Israeli society for. Now, true, you know, group parties like Meretz, certainly the um, the Ramlis, which is a, a, a Palestinian Israeli party that is part of this coalition, the first official part of a, of a, of a majority coalition in Israeli history. Uh, they're in a difficult position. And they're, you know, when the fighting broke out over Al-Aqsa, um, over the Al-Aqsa Mosque uh, weeks ago, they froze, they didn't leave the coalition, but they froze their um, activity in it. They would not do anything with the coalition. They would not do anything with the government. They sort of basically took a time out and said, let's see, let's let this calm down and see you know, where it goes. And if it had gotten worse, they would have been forced to bolt because you know, at some point they're a, a pretty conservative party and their, their, um, their, their politics are really uh, focused inward in, uh, in Israeli society and not on the question of uh, the Israel-Palestine conflict, but they're Palestinians. And so there's only so much they can, uh, they can take before their constituents start saying, look, we can't be part of this anymore. So yeah, he, Bennett, walks a constant tightrope with uh, with everything that he does. Well, even, um, I, I know, uh, for instance, recently, I think he admonished, and I always mispronounce his name, but uh, Itamar ben Iver? Itamar, I, but Itamar yeah, ben yeah, Iver. Who, who I think is even farther right than Oh, yeah, he is. is. But, you know, you have definitely. people like him uh, sort of trying to stoke up hatreds mm-hmm. and bigotries. So it, it's it's a very just... It's a volatile situation. Yeah, I mean, Ben Gvir is not part of the majority coalition. Right. He's in the opposition. Um, ben Gvir is not, I mean, in many ways, his politics are not that much farther right than Bennett, but he's a provocateur. Bennett is not. Bennett is a, Bennett's a business, uh, ultimately, Bennett's a businessman. Um, and and that, that's where he came to, you know, he, he was first a business success before he came into politics. Um, I think he was a software designer or something, but he, he had built up a pretty large company and then he went into politics. He, so he's somebody who can fall back into some kind of pragmatism. Ben Gavir is just a provocateur. He's just, his whole, his whole approach, I mean, this is what he does. He goes into controversial areas like Sheikh Jarrah in, in East Jerusalem and sets up an office in the middle of the, of the contest, most contested spot in that town. Um, he, he's trying to, to, you know, again, to stoke uh, hostility, anger, and create violence. He, he, that is what he is actually trying to do. So that's a little different from, from, from Bennett. Um, Bennett is trying to manage this as best he can. He's trying within his right-wing ideology to be a, a responsible prime minister. I, I think he's trying to, because his whole, the whole reason he was elected is to be different from his predecessor, Benjamin Netanyahu, who was much more of an ideologue and, and a provocateur in his own way. So uh, Bennett is trying to, to be right. You know, he's, he's not pretending to not be the right winger he's always been, but he's trying to be more, you know, of a responsible manager. He's trying to, uh, and, and he's not being very successful at it, but he's doing the best he can to be a prime minister for quote unquote, all of Israel. So um, again, he's, he's not looking for big controversy. He's looking for opportunities to prove that he can be a unifying leader. And so far he hasn't really found it. So the last things I wanted to touch on here were, um, I know the article that you wrote for Responsible Statecraft talks about uh, the issue of settlements and their expansion. I've tried, you know, it's interesting. I think when people like uh, yourself or, or me try to talk about this, um, oftentimes we we don't realize that you know uh, someone that's completely new to this may not even understand 
uh, what we mean by you know, mm-hmm. settlement expansion. So maybe you could explain that. So um, in 1967, uh, Israel won the famous Six-Day War and captured the West Bank, which is the land on the West Bank of the Jordan River, hence the name. Um, I think one of the things that that is often underestimated uh, in this in this conflict is what the West Bank actually is. So, you know, when we talk about the the sort of uh, the religious consciousness of Jews, when we talk about the national ideology of Zionism as a as a as a as a, a historical. Uh, as a historical memory, as, as the concept that, that, there, that it is just the, the modern formulation of the nation of the Jewish people. Um, you know, every, every nationality has some sort of construct like this. Um, in, in the case of Zionism, there's, there's reading the Bible as history, and, um, which is a big mistake whenever you do it. But, um, but uh, that is a big component of this sort of Zionist ethos. All of that's, you know, the, those big stories mostly happened in the West Bank. Tel, there's no Tel Aviv in the Bible. There is a Jericho. There is a Hebron. Um, obviously, a Jerusalem. Um, these are, um, these, these are all in the West Bank. That's what the West Bank is. Um, it is that cradle of the uh, the Jewish religious national narrative. So it's very, very. When we talk about um, Israel giving up parts of that. I, I think people often underestimate how much of the core of Zionism is being uh, is being uh, pricked with that. Now it needs to happen. That's you know the, the the Bible is not a history book, in fact, and and these are modern problems that need to be dealt with in a, in with uh, with an ethics of justice and what's right and wrong. But if you do that, then Israel has to give it back. So instead, Israel since 1967 has been. Uh, building settlements there. Often the pattern is that uh, individual Israelis go and start with some motorhomes and put some, start building some structures and they're illegal and they have some, uh, sometimes even have some conflicts with the police. And after a certain number of years, Israel ends up recognizing it as new Israeli town in the West Bank. Um, others are intentionally set up by the government. Um, there has been, there have been plans for that almost since uh, Israel captured the territory. Um, and many of those plans have been carried out. So now you have hundreds of thousands of Israeli Jews living there, and this is illegal under international law. Okay, you know the, the United Nations bars um, uh, uh, taking lands by force, the United Nations Charter, and the Geneva Convention bars transferring uh, civilian populations into occupied territory, which is what the West Bank legally is. So um, with each, exp- you know, when when the idea of a two-state solution was agreed upon by uh, by the Palestinians and conditionally agreed upon, agreed to by Israel, the idea was that the Palestinians would get the West Bank and Gaza. So both on, uh, in a legal framework and in a practical way, um, the more settlements are there, the more, the, the more impossible the two-state solution becomes. And it, it's fascinating to me because one thing you point out in this article is that literally the day after Abu Akhla's killing Mm-hmm. You know, there's uh, Israel announced that it had approved plans for 4,427 mm-hmm. new settlement housing units throughout the West Bank. And yeah. uh, you, you say that that's the biggest expansion of settlements since Biden took office. Yes, it is. And um, and it's also done in the wake of, you know, uh, um, 
more preparations for Biden's visit next month. It, it echoes something that happened about 10 years ago when Biden was vice president and he was visiting Israel. And while he was there, uh, the Netanyahu government announced uh, a, a new settlement in East, in, in East Jerusalem, which is you know, the most controversial uh, place to put a new settlement called Ramat Shlomo, um, while he was there. Um, literally, it was literally a slap in the face. And, and one has to remember that, yes, Netanyahu and Barack Obama, president at the time, did not get along. But Biden has been Israel's guy in Washington since the 70s. Um, he, and and he, that was one of the reasons, actually, that Obama wanted him as vice president was, was exactly because of his pro-Israel credentials, because he, Obama knew that he was seen as, uh, as, as too supportive of the Palestinians. So he brought in Biden, who was not seen as supportive of the Palestinians at all. To, to kind of compensate for that. And Israel spit in his face while he was there by announcing new settlements. Um, so this, is, this kind of echoes that. Um, it is, it, what it, look, the fact of the matter is the two-state solution is, off the, is in reality off the table. There's no way that there can be a Palestinian state in the West Bank. It's just impossible. But you have sort of the administration in the US, the Biden administration, is trying to say, oh, Continues no, no, the state. two-state is still alive, yeah. Right, I mean, that is still official U.S. policy, and, and Biden keeps saying it, um, and Blinken keeps saying it. So by expanding settlements even further, they're, they're making that lie, and that's really what it is. The idea that, 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 it can't, that a two-state solution can even be achieved is a lie at this point. It just can't be, uh, unless the world is prepared to put up literally hundreds of billions of dollars um, to to completely remake Israel's infrastructure because it is so integrated with the settlements in the West Bank. There's no way that that this can be done. At, not to mention what would happen in Israeli society. Um, it's just not it's just not feasible. So um, that but by expanding settlements and and incidentally, let's be clear, it's not like there's a housing crisis in Israel. There's there's a, a, a cost a cost of living crisis, rents are going up just like here, uh, you know, and and uh, you know the cost of apartments are going up, uh, again just like here. But people can find it's not like people there aren't enough places for people to live within Israel, um, but yet these settlements go up with you know enormous costs by the way to Israeli taxpayers um, that that there's no economic. Uh, rationale behind it. It hurts the Israeli economy. So um, this is, and but it just makes it even harder for uh, anybody paying attention to believe that a two-state settlement uh, can happen. And I think, crucially, you mentioned, you know, we talked earlier about J Street. You know, this is a group that is committed to the two-state solution. Um, it's their whole raison d'etre. They, they really can't exist without it. And Israel is making it impossible for them to continue to, to even be a part of the scene because it sounds more and more hollow with each new settlement unit that gets built. So very last question here. With Biden's visit to Israel, what would you say he should be focusing on in, in an ideal situation? What should he be doing on this visit to Israel? So I, I think an ideal situation is so far removed from reality that I'm not sure my answer to that question would, would have any, would mean anything. It would, wouldn't matter. But within constraints of Israel continuing to be America's very close ally, 
and 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 the politics around Israel being such that you really can't do much to to question what it's doing. You know, one thing he could do, um, and and this is not out of the realm even of, of, of realistic possibility, though there would be considerable political blowback, is visit Shirin Abu Akba's family in East Jerusalem. That would be meaningful. It would be meaningful to the, to the Palestinians. It would also demonstrate that the U.S. was not completely sold on a unified uh, etern- uh, uh, Jerusalem as Israel's eternal capital, uh, you know, only an Israeli capital. It would mean something. It wouldn't mean a ton, but it would mean something. It would, it would certainly be a, a, a spark for the idea that you know, the Palestinians may be able to at least talk to the Americans to get something done. Um, so it would be something there would be some political blowback, but considering, you know, the 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 already controversial nature of this issue, I don't think it would be so terrible. I think it would be worth it. He won't do it. This is again, this is not on the table. That's one thing he could do. He could also, you know, be much more clear about uh, and loud, frankly, about the uh, the settlements. You know, Israel did this and Biden, the one thing Biden must have been happy about was that they did it while everybody was paying attention to the Shireen Abu Akwa killing and her funeral and, and everything that happened around that. So there has been very almost no mention, really, of, uh, of the settlements in mainstream uh, American media. So it hasn't been a political issue for him. He could make it one. <laughs> that would be another thing that he could do. He knows, again, that would bring some backlash. And I think especially, you know, with pri- with uh, with midterms coming up in November, he's really not looking to do anything that's going to uh, increase, it, make it increasingly difficult for uh, Democratic candidates. I, I'm just curious, since you mentioned uh, Jerusalem and the, the issues there, you know, you, you talk in the article about Donald Trump's de facto recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Biden hasn't reversed that, of course. No. Um, is Biden in many ways, I, I don't like comparing Biden and Trump, but it seems like in this case, he's sort of continuing policies that have already been in place since Trump. That's exactly what he's been doing. Unfortunately, he's been doing quite a bit of that on foreign policy, not just in Israel-Palestine, um, and you know, in other areas too. I mean, um, he has not been, I think one of the the, the one of the and people who follow me, by the way, know I am a big critic of Biden. I really do not like Biden. Um, I, I didn't I did vote for him because it was him or Trump, but I didn't vote for him, of course, in the primaries. But, you know, between him and Trump, yes, I'll take him. But, you know, I mean, that, that's hardly a big compliment. Um, he, uh, he, there are things that are, there are things about, especially when we talk about Jerusalem, there are things there that are really complicated because there are laws in place that make it hard to, um, to just reverse what Trump did. Um, you know, that moving the embassy, Trump didn't actually make a decision to move the embassy. All he did was not waive a law that had been passed in 1996, that every president had signed a waiver for every six months ever since then, um, that demanded that the embassy be moved. So that, and, and reversing that is much more complicated. You know, all, all Trump had to do was not sign the waiver. For Biden, there's a law that Congress passed that is on the books. It's much more complicated. So is uh, reopening the PLO office in Washington, something Trump closed. Again, much more complicated to reopen it than it was to close it. So I, I, I will give Biden a little space on some of that, but he's been absolutely passive uh, on really doing anything. He has not strongly asserted 
that uh, that Jerusalem is still a, a matter for negotiate for final status negotiation. He's kind of alluded to it. He sort of said, "Well, we'd like to you know kind of do something, maybe open up a consulate here." Which, incidentally, again, people should understand, it's easy to close the consulate. It's much harder to reopen it unless Israel cooperates. You can't just open a consulate. You know, a, a consulate is American territory inside Israel, inside Israel's sovereign t- territory. So even in East Jerusalem, it's still a place under Israeli rule. They can't do it unless Israel consents. So it's, it's, it's a much more complicated issue than I think people think, but he's not trying. This is not something that there's any real effort towards. So, you know, and, and I think that's something the Palestinians uh, on the ground, they notice. They notice that, uh, you know, it, it, yeah, okay, we, we hear you when you say things are complicated, but you're not making any effort. You know, it, you say you would like to do it, but that's all you do is you talk and you don't talk to the Israelis. You only talk to the reporters. So, um, yeah, the fact is that that Trump made things bad and Biden has, I think, the best thing you could say about him is he has done nothing to make it better. So I want to thank you for uh, staying a little bit over time with me. Sure. Uh, Mitchell Plitnick, uh, if you could, how can my listeners keep up with your work and what, what do you hope that my listeners get out of the conversation we've just had for the past hour or so? Well, I hope, um, you know, again, depending on how much your listeners are already interested in this issue, I hope they look into it further. From whatever point of view they're, they're already at, read the opposing point of view. Understand who the other side is and what they're saying. Maybe you'll find they're right. Maybe you'll find they're crazy. Um, so I, I would say do that. You can follow me um, at rethinkingfarmpolicy.org. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at MJ Plitnik, uh, uh, at, at MJPLITNICK. Um, and uh, you'll, you'll see a lot of what I've talked about here. Um, but again, I, I just I think it's important that people understand more than anything else, when you're looking at this, it has to be about equality and equal rights for everybody. That, and that's been what's missing throughout uh, American policy on this for uh, the last hundred years. I, I was going to say, too, I think the other part of that equation is it needs to be about equality and rights. It also, I think we also need to recognize that the way everything is panning out right now, it's not good for anyone. Right. I mean, I think that's true. But, uh, you know, I also think that's a point of view. What I think is undeniable is that the United States has not played a constructive role in this. And so, you know, my personal focus is on U.S. policy and, and I think for, for those of, you know, anybody who's listening to you who's not an American citizen, you know, this is what I said before. If you are an American citizen, which I, I gather most of your audience probably is, you know, look at our policy and understand that our policy enables Israel to behave in a way that no country should be allowed to behave. Um, it, it behaves with total impunity. Um, and, and its only concern is what it wants to do and what its plans are. That, those are its parameters. And the United States shields it from repercussions from the rest of the world. That is, and, and that is on top of the fact that Israel is already overwhelmingly more powerful than the Palestinians. So, you know, that is what perpetuates this. Um, Israel, the only thing stopping Israel from completely taking over all the land and, and, and pushing Palestinians out is that the world wouldn't stand for it. That's the only thing that stops them. And so, you know, if that stops them, then we have to expand what the world won't stand for to include Israel's apartheid policies. If eventually we can do that, 
then, you know, and that's about our policy. That's about U.S. foreign policy, not about what Israel uh, wants or does. If we say an apartheid state is not something we can support, you'd be amazed how fast that would change. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with the Florida Bulldogs, Dan Christensen, and Rethinking Foreign Policies, Mitchell Plitnik. As always, if you support the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me financially on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Once again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. I'm a bit behind on getting out the Patreon-exclusive episode with former FBI agent and whistleblower Mark Rosini, but that will be out within the next day, and I hope you'll enjoy it. It's a rather lengthy, over-hour-long conversation and I think that it will shed some light on 9-11, and it's relevant to many of the issues we covered with Dan Christensen on this episode. That episode, uh, the Patreon exclusive with Mark Rosini, will be available on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Once again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. You can learn all the different ways that you can support the show on there. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it. Just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that... Uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff. It's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.